The following audio is from a sermon series entitled, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. I'm glad you're here. Didn't know if you would be. But at this time, you just got to defy the weather. You just got to defy it, right? Well, welcome to Sacred City Church. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my joy to open up the Word of God and preach to you this morning. If you are just joining us, we are about 15 weeks deep into our study of the book of Revelation. Uh, the book of Revelation is one of the most famous and yet least understood books in all the Bible, and all the world for that matter. Uh, we've only got a few weeks left, and you definitely should not miss any of the coming weeks. God has saved the best for last, and I can't wait to talk about the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, we're going to be seeing next week in chapter 21 that we get to enjoy with God uh, for eternity. But before that happens, in chapter 21, we've still got some work to do today. And as you heard in our reading this morning, we've got several different scenes presented to our imaginations. We've got Satan being bound 
with a great chain for a thousand years. We've got martyred Christians reigning with Jesus during this thousand years. And then at the end of those thousand years, we have Satan and his followers surrounding God's people with the intentions of destroying them. It's here that God deals his decisive blow with fire coming down from heaven and consuming them. And Satan, the beast, and the false prophet are all thrown into hell, the lake of fire and sulfur to be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then the chapter ends with the great white throne judgment and the opening of the books where every person's thoughts, words, and deeds are recorded. Then everyone is judged by what's found in these books. And if their name is not found in the Lamb's book of life, they are thrown into the lake of fire forever. Now, let me remind you that God gave this revelation to his beloved disciple John in the first century to encourage the church to remain faithful to God in the midst of an intense persecution. This book was meant to give them courage to keep preaching the gospel, to keep living in community and on mission, no matter how the government treated them, no matter how their employers treated them or their neighbors treated them. In one sense, this message of revelation, this revelation was given to Christians to help them keep on keeping on. That's an important point that we must always keep in mind when reading Revelation. I've said it before. This book is not about speculation. It's about transformation. It's not just about what God is going to do sometime in the distant future. It's about what God has already done in the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And it's about what God is about to do through his people now who internalize the message of this book, who live out the message of this book. People who read this book like it's just a literal description of some future reality, they completely miss out on the fact that we have been written into this story and we have a great part to play. We're not meant to read this book and go, oh, cool, this is interesting. Look what, look what God's gonna do in the future. Can't wait to watch that. I'll keep my eye out for the beasts. No. This book is meant to change the way you live. And if you read the book of Revelation and it doesn't change you, then you didn't understand it. This book is meant to fire you up. Now, I know it's going to be hard to fire you up this morning. It's snowy. There's about half of us here that are normally here. It's a whole lot easier to fire you up when there's a lot more people, right? So I'm going to need some help. All right, I might need some help this morning. Or I'm just going to lecture. Do you want me to do that? I'll just lecture. All right. I don't want to do that. This book, when you read it and you understand it and you internalize its message, message, it's meant to fill your normal everyday life with purpose and mission. You're to see your life as a missionary. I am a missionary to my culture. God's put me right where I am as a missionary. We are actors in this great drama of the renewal and the restoration of all things. That's our mission. That's what we're about. And we've got a lot of work to do. Even in our city today, 27th least city or least church city in the United States is 
That's the Quad Cities. Right? We have a lot of work to do in our city. From our text today, I see four characteristics of mission that we need to embrace or four truths from our text that are meant to shape the way that we do mission and we live out as our identities as missionaries here in the Quad Cities. And those four things that we're going to see are one, hope, two, courage, three, patience, and four, compassion. That's where we're going this morning. Let me pray and jump right in. Father, we welcome your Holy Spirit here. First off, we just want to profess our faith in your word no matter how fantastical it seems at times, no matter how out there, how science fiction it is, we believe it because we believe you, that you are the God who is there and you are the God who speaks and you've spoken to us through your word. And so help us believe it this morning. Help us understand it this morning. Help me faithfully teach it and preach it this morning. Father, would you think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords? I am a little tired and I need your help this morning. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. I'm going to go ahead and read it. We're going to work our way through it this week. I think I can make it through it fast enough since it's only 15 verses. Chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw angel. This is the apostle John seeing this. An angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And this angel seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Now, these three verses are some of the most hotly debated in all the book of Revelation. It's called, oftentimes, it's just labeled the millennium. The millennium, the a thousand year reign. It's an intense topic of debate in many churches, in many Bible colleges and seminaries. People love to huddle up and nerd out over this stuff. All right? Even denominations coming down and saying that they've got the definitive one way to interpret this and anybody who doesn't agree with them, you can't be a member. Foolishness. But as I wrote, I'm not going to recapitulate everything, as I wrote in the introduction to the book of Revelation that we have at the bookstore, honestly, this, this matter doesn't really matter that much. It's a tertiary issue at best. Now, what's going on? What's the big deal? Here's the big deal. People argue and they differ over this concept right here. Is the thousand years literal or is the thousand years figurative or symbolic? On the literal side, you have people that are pre-millennial. They, mean, they believe Jesus is going to come back, get his church and reign for a thousand years, okay? Literal thousand years on earth, all right? Then there's going to be the second resur resurrection. We'll get into all that. Then there's, and there's people that there, there's like, this is like a painting with a broad brush, okay? There's a million different ways people interpret all of those, all the intricacies in all of this, okay? They're called premillennial people. Then there's people called postmillennial people, still believe in a literal interpretation of this, this number. They believe that um, this is going to be, basically Christ is going to come back at the end of the 
at the end of the millennium, at the post-1000 year period, okay? Now, then there's people called all-millennial, all-millennial. All-millennial means, basically, it just means that they believe the 1,000 years is a figurative number, symbolic. Now, I believe it is symbolic because nearly every number in the book of Revelation so far has been symbolic, and we should just stick with the flow of things. And so this thousand-year reign of Christ is actually symbolic of what's called the church age, the time after the resurrection of, the, of Christ until his second coming. This whole period of time is just the church age. It's the thousand-year reign with Christ as Christ is reigning in heaven now. Now, Whew. So what are we, what are, what are, how am I teaching this this morning? I'm teaching this like this thousand years just represents a really long time, all right? Not a literal thousand years. Um, that it's also called the church age. Now, why am I doing that? Well, every, we've read nearly everything we read in the book of Revelation is symbolic. It's not actual literal. Even in this text today, Satan is called what? A dragon, a great serpent. Please don't interpret that literally right? He is not a serpent, right? He, uh, he is a spirit, actually, okay? He's a spirit. Now, let me ask you this. If you're going to interpret everything literal, how do you uh, lock a, a spirit up? Is there a way to do that? With a chain, by the way. Chain, right? How do you lock a spirit up with a chain? That's probably pretty difficult, right? How do you close, you know, lock him into a room and close it up or in a pit and close him up? The spirit could just go through it, right? It's a literal, it's not a literal de depiction. It's not a literal description. It is figurative. It's meant to be symbolic. It's symbolic of God putting Satan on a leash, limiting his ability to deceive the nations until Jesus comes back. There's all kinds of scriptures that talk about in Jesus' resurrections, he bound the authorities. Right? He's, he puts a limit on Satan's power. Right? He's disarmed the rulers, Scripture says. This is all symbolic language of Jesus in his death, death, resurrection, and ascension, taking the keys of death, hell, and the grave from Satan and limiting his power to deceive the nations. Now, what does this mean for us? This image is meant to give Christians hope, right? It's meant to give us hope. When Jesus rose from the dead, Satan was put on a leash. Now, he can still deceive people, but he cannot deceive everyone, and he cannot deceive completely or ultimately as he would like, right? Satan wants to steal, kill, and destroy everyone all the time. That's his goal. But he's on a leash and therefore he can't accomplish his mission. So what does that mean for us? Because Satan is on a leash right now, that, that his authority is limited, his, his effectiveness is limited, his effectiveness to deceive, that means we can have successful missional impact because Satan has been limited to deceive the nations. Think about that. Satan, who is a spirit, who is far more knowledgeable than any of us in this room. His theology is perfect, except he doesn't love God, right? He understands God better than we understand God. 
He's been a deceiver from the beginning. That means he's, he's tricksy. Right? He's been deceiving since the fall of Adam, and he is dang good at it. He can look at you, and he can see your weakest point. Boom. And he can get you whenever he wants you. If you understand the deceitfulness of your heart, you know that's the truth. Now listen, if this is the case, what hope would we have to go against him head to head? What hope would we have to share our faith with our coworker if the world's best deceiver was at full strength, right? Every argument we have, he would have a different argument that would counter it, right? All of our wisdom, he could trumpet. Everything we could say, he could trumpet. Well, what our hope is in is that Satan is restrained. See, Jesus shows us we can have hope because Satan's influence over our city is limited. When we share the gospel or invite a friend to missional community or invite somebody to our, our gathering this morning, we can have confidence that our efforts, I'm going to still say, might be successful. Not a guarantee. Right? If the Lord wills, that person will come to faith. So the first thing we see is a reason for us to have missional hope, for us to go out with confidence and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Satan is on a leash. He cannot deceive everyone ultimately all the time. Then we're going to go to verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded, for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not, had not received its mark on their foreheads, again, not a literal mark. This is um, obedience to the beast. This is um, rejecting the gospel and instead following their own way. That's what this means. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for, again, a thousand years. Okay, now what's interesting that you hear here, what we learn here, is for the Christian... There is one death and two resurrections. But for the unbeliever, there's two deaths and one resurrection. For the Christian, first, barring the Lord returns before we die, we will all die. When we die, we are resurrected into heaven. That's what this is depicting here. Christ is reigning right now during the church age. He's reigning in heaven. When a Christian dies on earth, their soul goes into heaven. In a sense, they are given new life. In a sense, they are resurrected. Theologians call this the intermediary state. It's not eternity. This isn't what it's going to be like forever. We have life, but in heaven, when we die in Christ and we get resurrected as spirits there, we have life, but we do not have a physical body. 
We will never die again. So we've died once. We will never die again. But we will, even in heaven, be resurrected again. We have a future resurrection. When you go to heaven, you got something to hope for. You got something to look forward to. You got a new body that's on its way. We're going to talk a little bit about that next week. Our souls then will get reunited with our recreated and totally restored physically, physical body. So in our second resurrection, it will be us 2.0. And that happens when Christ returns. So for the Christian, we die, we're immediately resurrected into heaven, where we get life, eternal life, and then at the, judge, at the great white judgment when Christ returns and all of that, then we get a new recreated body and we once again will have a physical body and we will live on a newly created or recreated or restored earth where heaven and earth combine into one thing. That's where we get to live with Christ forever, with a physical body. So for the Christian, there's one death and two resurrections. Now this reality, what is this reality meant to do? This reality isn't just sci-fi, right? This reality is meant to give us unquenchable courage for living missionally. In a sense, this reality is meant to say, don't worry so much about your physical body. You've got a new one on, on call, right? In a, in a sense, it kind of reminds me of like Tony Stark, right? Tony Stark, Iron Man. He's not too worried about his suits. Why? Because he's got another one in the thing. Just he'll get another one, right? Call, call the second one. Bring it on, right? That's what we see here for these Christians. They're not that worried about their death. In a world where everyone, that's all they're thinking about is how to postpone their death, how to keep death at bay, right? how to eat all the right things, how to exercise perfectly, how to avoid the draft and avoid war if possible, how to avoid any threat of death. Why? To keep, this is my only body. This is my only life. I have to keep it for my own. Think about it here. When this book was written, Christians were being killed for refusing to give allegiance and worship the Roman emperor. To share your faith was literally to risk your life. And not even that. Some of us, we puff out our chest and we're willing to stand in the face of an opposition like that and risk our life. But when you're a father and you know by puffing out your chest and by standing up for your faith, your wife gets taken and your kids get taken. If this life is all we have to look forward to, how can I do that? I cower under it and I do anything to keep my life. I do anything to save my family. But Jesus shows them and us by extension to kill us is not to stop us. Oh man, I love this. Jesus said to lose your life is to find your life. The apostle Paul said, my desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. Paul was looking forward to his death. Listen, when the believer dies, they go to be with the Lord to never die again and to wait on the second resurrection. 
That truth gives the Christian unquenchable courage, listen, to risk reputation, comfort, our accumulated wealth, for the sake of the gospel now. The Christian has to live with the picture of our future resurrection, the, the, the picture of our future body. We have to live with that in our mind so that we can live appropriately now. Or we will overvalue our stuff now. We'll be afraid to lose it. One of my favorite books is uh, this little uh, on uh, the rise of Christianity, how Christianity got off the ground. And it's called The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark, who's a sociologist or was a sociologist at the University of Washington. And he is evaluating just the sociological um, si si kind of the signals, the things that, that caused Christianity to get off the ground. And one of the things was during the great plagues, the way Christians responded to the plagues. Thousands upon thousands of their friends and family members were succumbing to the plagues. And this is a letter, he's quoting it in this book, this is a letter written around 260 AD by the bishop uh, Dionysius. And this is, what he, this is what he says here. Mo during the plagues, most of our brother Christians showed, un I'm going to say most of them, I love that, showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. No, heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. A number of our, de a number of our elders, deacons, and laymen, winning high commendation so that death in this form, the result of great piety and strong faith, seems in every way equal of martyrdom. These Christians did not love their lives unto themselves. They did not see their body as something that they had to keep safe. And so when the sick, when people got sick, these Christians went out and welcomed them and took care of them, even getting sick themselves and dying. Now listen, why would that have caused Christianity to spread? The quoting Dionysus again, the unbeliever behaved in the very opposite way. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, 
they found it difficult to escape. The Christians were willing to get sick and die to care and love for the others. And the unbelievers, knowing this is the only life I have, took their babies and threw them in the streets so as not to get infected themselves. I can make another baby. I don't want to lose my life. This comes from a gospel understanding of really what we're seeing in Revelation 20. When we die, the, like we die, you take our life, we go to reign with Christ in heaven now, right? It's better for us to actually go. So we don't have to hold tightly to this life. We can have courage and risk reputation, risk the loss of our finances, Now, sometimes that kind of intensity, you know, the courage to lose worldly treasures or even our life for the sake of gospel can be misinterpreted as fanaticism. Similar to that of the Islamic jihadist who believes their martyrdom guarantees their place in heaven. But the Christian is never justified to try to convert someone by the threat of violence. That's the way of Satan, not Jesus. For the Christian, the third thing we see for our mission here, so we saw hope in mission, we saw courage in mission, and now we see we have to have patience in mission. Look at, chapter, or look at verse seven. When the thousand years are ended, so when the church age is over, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. To gather them for battle, their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, St. Augustine puts this simply. Gog and Magog represents Satan and his followers. Gog and Magog um, are, uh, Gog is a, a king from Ezekiel 38 and 39, and Magog is the kingdom that he ruled. And it's just basically symbolic of an, ungod, of an ungodly king and an ungodly people, right? It's symbolic of Satan and all those who follow him. Satan and all those who take the mark of the beast. Satan and anyone who doesn't follow Jesus. And basically what happens at the end of time, what happens at this day, this battle of Armageddon, is that all the believers that are still on the earth, Satan and his army surround them. And if this were a movie, this would be the most disappointing movie on the face of the planet. You would have an hour and a half of buildup of Satan scheming and planning and rounding up Christians and surrounding them. And you've got this great, maybe a walled city and you've got this great battle, just like if you think of Lord of the Rings, you've got this great battle that's about to ensue and there's gonna be this onslaught and who's going to win, I don't know. And right before the battle starts, God just rains down fire and wipes them all out. <laughs> He's like, okay, now that we're done with that. All right? See, in this third scene, we see Satan and his followers surround God's people. 
And I love it because God's people here are lovingly referred to as the saints and the beloved city. The beloved city, the people whom he loves. Satan and his people are hell-bent on destroying God's people, but God with we saw that Jesus had fire for eyes. And so when I read this, I kind of see, I kind of just envision Jesus just looking down from heaven. It takes a look from Jesus to just whoop, wipe out Satan and his followers. This is meant to give Christians who are experiencing persecution, we're not always successful in mission. We're tempted by doing mission by the ways of the world. This is meant to give Christians patience in mission. We're not to use violence to try to convert anyone. We're to wait and let God fight our battles. Then lastly, the last scene. Then I saw a great, in verse 11, a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. In my mind, I picture the, the opposite. I don't even know what this would be. It's the opposite of a black hole. If a black hole is, thing, is something that there's nothing there, but it's sucking everything into it, into itself, this is the opposite of that. God himself, everything in creation is fleeing from him. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small. What does he mean great and small? Most powerful men to ever rule and the meekest child who never broke the womb. Standing, all of them. The only true de democracy. All of them. Standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened. Which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And even the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now I know that you do not like this scene. Many of my friends have told me that they don't, they don't like a God on the throne judging. You might think that a God who sits on a throne and judges the world is just an archaic concept of God, primitive. I don't necessarily disagree with you on that. I just ask you, why is your modern concept of God any more real than the archaic concept? Be careful. Just because something is newer 
doesn't mean it's any more real or true or good. To think that our views are better than the ancient man's view is what C.S. Lewis famously called chronological snobbery. And secondly, when I look at your view and you say, I don't believe in a God who would judge people, I don't believe in a God who sits on a throne, I just really question your view. And I say, I don't think you actually have any problem with the reality of a throne or with the reality of judgment, or even the, the books that's got people's deeds in it. I don't think you actually have a problem with that. The problem, if, if I could pinpoint your problem, the problem is with the roles that are assigned. See, in reality, in, in reality, God is on the throne judging humanity with perfect wisdom, vision, and insight. He is holy and righteous and everyone must conform to his ultimate standard of righteousness and goodness. And if they don't, they are judged by the throne or by the judge on the great white, white, pure, perfect throne. See, I would push back against you and say, I don't think you have a problem with the throne or judgment. I think you have a problem with who is on the throne. See, your problem, and my problem a lot of times, is that I think I have the autonomy to sit on the throne myself. C.S. Lewis said, the ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles have been reversed. He is the judge, and God is in the dock. You say, I don't want a God that judges people, and yet you sit on your throne and judge people all the time. You have things you believe to be right and wrong, behaviors that are immoral and moral, and you claim to have a standard which you want and expect other people to conform to. Right? Even if it's just... Here's one that I've got and I'm a hypocrite on. When you're in a parking lot, you're supposed to back out of your spot. You're not supposed to drive through the other spot, right? And every time someone drives through the other spot, I'm like, you idiot. Who do you think you are? And then sometimes I just like, you know, when I'm by myself, I look around. I do the same thing. <laughs> right? See, you think people should be punished for breaking your standards. Everyone has standards. Everyone makes moral judgments. See, therefore, you don't have a problem with judgment. You have a problem with who's doing the judging. You have a problem with who's on the throne. See, but when you are on the throne... It inevitably leads to arrogance and pride and tribalism. Everyone who doesn't view things like you or obey your rules, everything is, everyone else is stupid and incompetent. No one is as clever or wise or beautiful as you and your group. See, but here is why the great white throne judgment found in Christianity is so good. 
when the holy God is on the throne, it creates humility by necessity. And that humility, listen, here it is, that humility leads to a compassionate mission. Leads to missionaries who are compassionate towards others who aren't like them and don't believe like them and don't live like them. See, in this scene, here's what happened. In this scene, the books are opened. These books, now again, they're symbolic. I hope they might, there might not be literal books in heaven, okay? These books are a symbolic depiction of God's knowledge. That God knows every thought, every intention, every motivation, every feeling, every action. God sees all, keeps track of all. And what does that tell us? We, all of us, we have failed him. We have failed to be good a million times over. And therefore, in the courtroom of God, before the great white throne judgment, we all stand equally condemned. We are all guilty under his righteous law. See, when you are judging, there's good people and bad people. When God is judging, there's bad people and God. When the standard is holy, when the standard is righteousness, everyone falls short. That creates humility. Should create humility if you understand it. Now what hope do we have before a great white throne judgment, before the eyes of a God who can see in our heart and can see in every closet of our past, see every skeleton we've ever had. He can look into our heart and he can name it and he can say it and we would stand utterly condemned. What hope do we have before this God with these books in his mind? <laughs> Cheater. True. Here's the glorious good news. There's another book. Jesus' book. The book of life. The book where the names of all of his sheep are written. It says in John, every person that the Father has given me. It's in this book. He's never lost one of them. He's never lost a sheep. He's the perfect shepherd. We dive through holes. He goes after us. We jump off cliffs. He snatches us before we go. He's the perfect shepherd. What does it take to be written in that book? Faith. You must put God back on the throne and put yourself in the dock. You must surrender the control of your life over to Jesus, the one who lived and bled and died and rose again for you. See, our faith which is a gift of God, is the ink on the pages of the book of life. And that, my friend, creates humble, compassionate people. I stand before God, and I'm, now, because I've seen the end of the book, I don't know how I'm going to stand there. I might be confident because I get the gospel, but more than likely, if stars are fleeing from the presence of God, I might shake a bit. I might be a little nervous, right? Even if I know I'm innocent and I have to go to the, before the judge, you know, 
Even if I know I'm innocent, there's something in the back of my mind. I get pulled over, even if I'm not doing something wrong, I'm thinking there might be a warrant out for my arrest. I might, that's what I'm thinking. I'm like, I might have unpaid parking tickets or unpaid tolls, and there, I might get locked up. I get nervous around any type of law, law enforcement. Any, <laughs> oh, boy. Now, listen, what am I going to feel before the great white throne? If I have confidence, my only confidence is in the word of God and in the gospel itself. That I'm going to stand, here, here listen, I'm going to stand before the throne. And he might, here's the deal, he might read my neighbor's sins out loud. Who has never embraced Jesus Christ. And, and he said, depart from me, I never knew you. And to hell he goes. And it might be my turn and I get up there. And my neighbor might be a better person than me. You got the list? Maybe his sin, his list of sins are a lot shorter than mine and still says, depart from me. And yet I get there and he goes on and on and on and on and he lists my sin and I get nervous and I look behind me and oh, yeah, I forgot about that one. And then he says, oh, wait, but there's another book. And he opens up the book of life and he says, Justin Dean. And he looks at me and he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter in. Enter into the joy that's been prepared for you by your father. Now, I want you to think of this. My neighbor might be a better person than me. Might have gave more money to charity. Might have been kinder and gentler and had less of a carbon footprint. But he hears, depart from me. Not because of anything he's done, but because he rejected the one hope for the world. He rejected Jesus Christ. Now, what does that do for the Christian? That creates compassion. That cre creates a, a desire to be compassionate for those who are outside of our community. That we, we want to compel them. Embrace our Savior. Know our Savior. We're no better than you are. There's books where everything is written that we've ever done, and those are nothing but condemnation. But there's a book of grace. There's a book of redemption. There's a book of life that your name could be written in if you humble yourself, put God back on the throne and put yourself in the dock and say, Jesus, I'm guilty. I accept your perfect life in my place. I accept your sacrifice on the cross for my sin. For the Christian, I pray that this would move us to take the gospel to our neighbors, to, to our co-workers, that we can have hope that when we share the gospel or we invite them to church, that God is working through us and he's restrained the devil and we might be successful, that we don't have to fear looking stupid because who cares, right? Who cares? 2.0, us is on the way, Right? We can have courage to do that. We can also have patience, not to force anything.
And lastly, we can have compassion. And like Jesus over the Jews of his day, we can weep over those who don't know Christ yet. I pray that many in our city would hear the gospel this year because of compassionate missionaries in this building right now. This is a, it's just a glorious day. We get to see the gospel. First, we got to see the gospel displayed as he dropped snow from heaven and covered our sins, covered our ugliness, covered the slush and the nastiness, blanketed it with snow. It's a picture of the gospel. Then we got to see the gospel displayed in baptism, that we are dead with Christ and raised to new life, praise God. Then we get to hear the gospel, we get to sing the gospel, and now we get to eat the gospel. <laughs> Come to the Lord's table this morning. With hands stained by sin, and yet receive in them the body of the unstained one. Jesus, who lived the perfect life and died the substitutionary death in our place on the cross for our sins. That his blood was shed to make us clean. His blood was shed to secure us in our names written in the Lamb's book of life. And so we come today in worshipful faith, renewing our covenant with him, eating the body of our Lord, drinking the blood of Christ, doing this until the day that he returns, proclaiming the Lord's death, proclaiming the gospel until he returns. Father, as we eat, would you convince us of our righteousness in you? Convince us that when we stand before the throne, our hope is in Christ and our hope is in our names being written in the Lamb's book of life. And would you send us out on mission with that message to those who don't yet know you. Pray all these things in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.